Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Jordan, and I'm one of the pastors here at eFree. Welcome to everybody here in the auditorium. Welcome to everybody over in the venue and anybody watching online. Good morning. So glad you could all be here with us today. Um, so some of you may notice that I was not here much over the summer. I had the blessing of getting to take a sabbatical, and so I got time to uh, refresh in my relationship with Jesus and to retool and gain some more ministry knowledge to continue to do uh, student ministry well, and then got to spend some extra time with my family. And so it was a great blessing. So thank you to our church families for making this possible. Thank you for... Uh, the church staff who covered for me while I was gone and my different roles I had to do. And then thank you to our elders and Pastor Adrian for making this a priority. It was a, a tremendous blessing. So today we are going to wrap up our series, Broken to Beautiful, by looking at the last uh, chapter of First Corinthians. And that got me th- thinking about endings. So I love stories. It doesn't matter if they're movies or they're TV shows or they're books, but they have to have a good ending. If they don't have a good ending, then it's a waste of time in my opinion. And so as I was thinking about this, I want to tell you about a TV show that wasted six years of my life. This TV show was called Lost. I'll show you familiar, familiar with this show. So it starts off super promising. It is very interesting. There's a plane, the plane crashes on an island, and then odd things start happening. So the guy's paralyzed, plane crashes, now he can walk. And then as he's exploring the island, there's polar bears on this island. And then wait, there's not just polar bears, there's a smoke monster on this island. And then there's not just a smoke monster, there's this light that comes out of the ground. And then there's these random numbers. And then it goes from one thing to the next thing, and then the island is time traveling. And for for me, I was like, this is a mystery. Like, this is a puzzle. How are they going to bring this all together? And I I love puzzles and I love mysteries, and so I'm like, I want to find out what's going to happen. And there was a theory early on that they were dead the whole time. And they had to just come to terms with the, the fact that they were dead. And they would ask, ask the actors and the director and the writers of the show when they would do interviews at award shows and things and say, hey, you know, there's a theory that they're all dead. And again and again, they would say, oh, no, 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 no. We have this great idea. They're not dead. Six years. You get to the end. They were dead the whole time. <laughs> On top of that, this was back before streaming services and things, so I'm watching it on NTV, and it was in the spring, and there were thunderstorms. And so in the middle of the finale, NTV is breaking in and going, there's a thunderstorm in Norton, Kansas. I'm like, get off of my screen. Like, they're solving the mystery for me. But they weren't solving it. And so it was terrible. And so I hope if you've never watched Lost, I saved you six years of your life. But... I say all that to say we're going to wrap up 1 Corinthians, and Paul does a much better job than the writers of Lost. You may be worried because you're like, there's a 2 Corinthians. Does that mean there's going to be a cliffhanger? And then you're going to see Paul, and he's going to be in the middle of this, and we're just going to come back and say, come back next year for the next letter. That's not the case. He's going to wrap it all up, okay? So this morning, we are going to cover a little bit of new material, and then the majority of it is going to be pivoting to recap the series. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your word. God, thank you for your kindness that you speak to us through your word, that you help us to understand how to live here on earth, that you don't leave us on our own, but instead you, you guide us and you direct us. God, thank you for Paul and, and his wisdom that you instilled in him and how you inspired him to write to the Corinthians and how it doesn't just help the Corinthians, but it helps us as well. God, we love you and pray this all in your son's name. Amen. 
All right, so we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, which is towards the back of your Bible. It's in the New Testament. If you get to, so you're looking for Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. If you get to 2 Corinthians or Galatians, Ephesians, you're too far to the right, go back to the left, and you'll find 1 Corinthians 16. So here is what Paul says to them. He says, Now, about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. So Paul is um, sharing his love for the Jerusalem church by asking the surrounding churches to send a gift to the Jerusalem church. So we're not entirely sure what's going on in Jerusalem. There is maybe a famine occurring there, or there may be persecution that is causing the Christians in Jerusalem to be unable to work and make an income. And so Paul loves these brothers and sisters in Christ, and he's saying, hey, the surrounding churches that have the ability to make an income, would you give a portion of that income to the Jerusalem church? Now, I love that this is here. I love this is here because God calls us to generosity to break the hold that money has on our hearts. That it's so easy for money to wrap itself around our hearts and to make us think that our safety and our security and our joy and our happiness comes from money, not from God. And so as Paul calls them to generosity, he is um, giving them an opportunity to be free from the threat that money has on our hearts. And, And perhaps... You would say, like, I don't think money is really an issue for me. I don't think it is a threat to my heart. But think with me for a moment. If I told you I spent a large portion of my time on sabbatical building a large water tower behind my house, and it has this water recycling system, and now I have a lifetime supply of water, you'd be like, weird, whatever. Glad you have that, but I'm not interested. But if, what if I also said, you know, I spent a large time uh, on my sabbatical building this shed behind my house that was like this Quonset building that I put racks and shelves in, and then I stored freeze-dried rations like astronaut food that you just add water to. And so now I have a lifetime supply of food and water. Like, weird, it sounds like you're a prepper, and I don't know about that, Jordan. But what if I said to you, I spent a large time on my my time on sabbatical learning the best way to buy and sell stocks and bonds and these things, and now I have a lifetime supply of money. I think there's something in our hearts that goes, ooh, I want that. Like, I talk about a lifetime supply of water, and you're like, whatever, I'll go to my tap. Or if I go, I have a lifetime supply, uh, I have a lifetime supply of food, and you're like, whatever, I'll go to the grocery store. But if I say I have a lifetime supply of water, you're like, can I have some? Like, how do I get that? I think there's something in our hearts that when we hear people have large sums of money, we go, I want what they have. Because there's this threat that money has to our hearts that we feel like if I had that, I'd be happy. If I had that, I'd be secure, I'd be safe, my problems would be gone. And it's this threat for us to find our hope in someplace other than Jesus. And so when Paul calls them to be generous, he's giving them the opportunity to break the bond that money has on their hearts. So as followers of Christ, this is our first takeaway this morning. As followers of Christ, when it comes to giving, it should be intentional. 
Our giving should be intentional. I see this in verse two. He says, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. So he, has a, he says, have an intentional plan. So on the first day of the week, set aside a sum of money so that when he comes, there's already money collected for them to send to Jerusalem to help the Jerusalem church. So they're intentional. Now this is different than maybe giving out of an excess where you get to the end of the month and you go, if there's money left over, I'll, I'll donate some of it. Or if you treat giving like tipping, where it's like if I get something out of church this morning or out of the gathering this morning, then I'll put something in the black box as I leave today. But this doesn't break the bond that money has on our hearts because if you think about it with food, if after the service today we went out to dinner or lunch, whatever you call it, at noon, and we went out to that meal, and you got chicken wings and french fries, and when your chicken wings and french fries came, you, you took a plate and you put like four, four wings and a handful of fries on there and you gave it to me, like that's a little bit more painful because you're going, I might wanna eat those wings. I might still be hungry when I ate mine and there's still not any left over. But if instead you ate all your chicken, or you ate your chicken wings and you ate your fries and then there was one chicken wing left over and one fry, but you're going, I'm fully satisfied. And you said, hey Jordan, if you want that wing, I can't eat anymore, you can have it. It does something different in our hearts. So in, in one sense you're saying, I am, as an act of worship, saying God, I'm gonna give to you a portion of my money because I'm saying you are my hope, you are my security, you are my source of joy and so I'm gonna give this to you first. Instead of going, okay, I have all my satisfaction and there's a little bit left over so you can have some of it. So I believe that Jesus calls us to be intentional and Paul is calling the Corinthians to be intentional. But he also calls them to be proportional. So this is also in verse two. He says, you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. So he says, give a proportion of your income. The easiest way to do this is a percentage. A percentage of your income. Now, historically, We've talked about 10% in Christianity, that this is what God calls us to give as followers of Christ is 10% of our income. But I would encourage you to give some proportion, some percentage, and then it can expand or um, however it needs to adjust, it can do that. But if you are someone who's saying, I have been to this point been a excess giver or I have been a tipper, I'd encourage you to start with a percentage. And if you go, I can't start with 10 Start with one or two or five, whatever that is, but build the habit of being generous. Because as you build that habit of supporting the local church that supports you, of supporting your local church that works in your community, then God uses that to grow the community, grow the local church. And as you do that, it will help to break the hold that money has on our hearts. And I want you to know, I'm not saying this like this is a you problem and not a me problem. Like this is something that I'm glad that God calls me to be generous as well because I, I have the same money problem in my heart. And I learned about it when we started sending mission trip teams to Magange, Colombia. So if you're unfamiliar with Magange, there is a, a city in Colombia that we as a church have sponsored around 400 Compassion International children. And as we sponsored them, we started getting to send mission trip teams to Magange and those teams started coming back and they started sharing stories. And I have to let you know that some of their stories upset me, that they bothered me. 
because they would get to meet their compassion children. And they, some of them got to go to their compassion children's homes. And they said, we got to go to their homes, and their homes were four cinder block walls with a tin roof that leaked when it rained, and they had wood floors, and not wood floors, they had dirt floors. And in the corner, they had a one little hot plate where they would cook their meals, and on those meals, it would be mostly rice and beans with a little bit of chicken. And then they would say, but they had so much joy and so much gratitude. They were so grateful for what we had been doing for them through Compassion International. They were so grateful for all that they had. And it upset me because I said, where is my gratitude? Like, where is my joy? Like, they have nothing compared to what I have. Like, I have carpeted floors. I have air conditioning. I have a roof that doesn't leak. I have a car that I get to drive when it's cold. And yet, I don't have gratitude and joy like these people have. And it was troubling to me. Why is it that they have nothing and they have joy and I have everything and I'm, I am frustrated and I'm focused on what I don't have? And as God began to work in my heart through this, I began to realize that money had taken hold of my heart and money was saying, Jordan, you need more. Because we live in a society that is a bigger, better, flashier, fancier society that is always saying what you have is never good enough. There's always a newer, better version. And so if we, get, if we don't live a generous lifestyle where money has its hold on us broken, we live bound with gold chains that says you never have enough, despite the fact that you have more than most people ever get. And so I'm grateful that God calls us to generosity because generosity has slowly broken the bonds around my heart that makes me feel like I have to have more in order to be grateful or I have to have more in order to be happy. And that's what we want for you. We don't want you to live that way. We, we don't want you to live this life where you're bound without gratitude, without joy, because you feel like I just need more money in my bank account to have those things. And so as followers of Christ, if we... If we give intentionally, if we give, give proportionally, it begins to break those bonds on our hearts and sets us free. So that is the new material. Now we're going to pivot to cover, uh, to recap what we've been doing in 1 Corinthians. So I just want to give you a quick overview of these next few verses. So verses 5 through 9, I'm not going to read them, but Paul is describing his love for the Corinthian church and how he wants to come and visit them and he wants to stay there for a long time. And then in verse 10 through 11, he's talking about his love for Timothy and how Timothy is his apprentice and he's gonna send Timothy to them and he wants them to welcome Timothy with respect and hospitality as they would welcome Paul. And then verse 12, he's talking about his love for Apollos who he, he wanted Apollos to go and to visit um, them in Cor Corinth but Apollos just can't come then so hopefully later on he'll be able to come. Then he gets to verse 13 and 14. And in 13 and 14, he gives them five commands so he says, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. So these are five imperative or commands that he says, this is what you need to do, Corinthians. That as I, I wrap up this letter, what you need to know is that you need to be on your guard. So as followers of Christ, this is our second takeaway, as followers of Christ, we must be on our guard. We must be on our guard. And maybe you ask the question of why do I need to be on guard? What do I need to be on guard against? So the situation is that when you live in a society where you are surrounded 
by a society that is countercultural to the way of Jesus, that there are many things that are not trying to shape and mold you towards Jesus, but instead are trying to shape and mold you to buying something, then you need to be on your guard. Because otherwise, it'll begin to shape and mold your thoughts and your attitudes, and you begin to wake up some days and go like, why do I have this discontentment? Why do I have a lack of gratitude? Why don't I have joy when Jesus promises me joy and peace and contentment, and I don't experience these things? It's because we've been shaped countercultural to Jesus. And so we need to be on our guard to, go, to ask the question, what am I being shaped by? When I notice attitudes in me that I don't like, where is this coming from? And then begin to think through Jesus Christ and the gospel and go, like, where do I need to believe more about Jesus? Where do I need to stop believing something that's counter to Jesus and start believing who Jesus says he is and how he calls me to live as a follower of Christ? Now, Paul gave them two, two big areas for them to be on their guard against. So one was division in the church. So 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 4, he's really talking about division in the church and how it's really easy for us in human, as human beings to rally around a human being not named Jesus Christ. And so for the Corinthian church, they were rallying around Paul and Apollos and Cephas. And they had these little groups that have formed, and they're going like, Apollos is the guy for our church. No, Peter's the guy for our church. No, Paul is the guy for our church. And they was creating these these fights and these cliques in their church because they were arguing over who should be leading their church or who they should be following. And Paul's writing to them and saying, hey, you guys have lost your ideas here. You need to be following Jesus. Like Jesus is our guiding light. Jesus is the one we follow. It's not these human beings, it's Jesus. But then he also told them to be on their guard against winking at sin minimizing sin or acting like it's not a big deal or just saying that it's something that is sin isn't sin. So we, if you remember back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, they were dealing with the major issue of sin in their church and how the church itself was just acting like it was no big deal. And Paul writes to them and says, you need to take care of this. Like, this is not reflecting well on Jesus Christ and on his people. And so you need to go and deal with this. And so it's a reminder for us that we need to be on our guard against minimizing sin in our own lives. And instead of wanting to put it to death, we just go, oh, it's really not that big of a deal. I'll get around to it someday. But instead, we need to be diligent to say, if there's some area in my life where I'm not following Christ, I need to strive to follow him in that area. Because God calls me to follow him because it leads to more life. And so I want to reflect his good character to the world around me. But then he moves on to the next command. He says, as followers of Christ, we must stand firm in the faith. As followers of Christ, we must stand firm in the faith. Now, it would be easy for me to just come up and stand up and say, hey, you just need to believe more and just be, try harder at this. Stand firm. But I don't think that's the best way to do this. I don't think that leads to actual success. I think as followers of Christ, when we stand firm in the faith, we do this by connecting daily with Jesus. That as we connect with Jesus Christ, he strengthens us. And then as he strengthens us and helps us to be on our guard, we are more clear about what is right and what is wrong and what we need to do. And so we connect daily with Jesus. We, we connect with him through Bible intake. Now that might be reading your Bible, might be listening to the Bible, might be memorizing scripture, it might be reading devotional that helps you to grow, but it's some way where you're getting the Bible into your heart and your life. And then paired with that is prayer. 
It's an opportunity to talk to God about what's going on in your life and to listen for him to talk back to you. And I've never heard a verbal response, but it's this guiding as you are praying, you think about verses that you've heard in church or verses you've read or maybe something you read that day and you feel like, okay, this is what God's saying to me today. He's saying to me to, to trust him in this area with my, my life or my finances or whatever the thing might be. And so when I was on sabbatical, one of the things, one of the books that I read, uh, one of the guys talked about how he uses the Lord's Prayer as a template for praying. And it's really made a big difference for me as I've been using this to pray, and it's really helped me to focus my mind and my heart on Jesus and his kingdom. So in Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says to them, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So he says, he pauses after that. After you read, how, uh, our Father in heaven, holy be your name, he pauses and he says, God, today as I go throughout my day, would you help me to make your name great? As I go through my day, would you help me to focus on you, that I, I want people to walk away impressed by you, not by me. God, would you help me to make your name famous today, not my own? And then he goes on, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then he pauses again. Father, would you help me to be about your kingdom today? Not about building my own kingdom, but about building your kingdom. Would you help me to live inside your kingdom as someone who has love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control? That God, I, I want to reflect those characteristics to the world, not my natural desires, which are selfish, or which are maybe harming to people. When they lash out at me, I want to lash out back at them. Would you help me to instead live as a citizen of your kingdom? Then it goes on and says, give us today our daily bread. Which for most of us, we are so blessed that we don't have to wonder, what are, where are we going to eat today? Or is there going to be food on the table? The question is, what are we going to eat? Like, I have all these options for breakfast. What is it going to be? I have all these options for lunch. What is it going to be? All these options for dinner. What is it going to be? And so for me, that prayer is, God, thank you that I don't have to wonder about my meals. But God, I do need patience today. Because apart from you, I'm gonna get frustrated with my kids, so would you give me patience today to deal with their interactions with them? Or perhaps you need wisdom today, and so you're gonna say, Father, would you give me wisdom? As I have this situation at work, or I have this situation at home, would you give me wisdom for how to handle these things? Or perhaps you're a teacher, and it's, would you give me patience with the kids in my classroom? But you go, what is it that I need today? I'm gonna to ask God for that specific thing. And then the next one, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. God, would you help me, would you forgive me today? And would you help me to forgive the people that are gonna wrong me? That people are going to wrong me today. And, and for me personally, I get self-righteous about it. So if I feel like I was doing the right thing when I'm driving my car and you cut me off and then you started yelling at me, I'm like, what is your problem? Like, you cut me off. And then I wanna spend the rest of the day like arguing with them about why what they did was wrong and they should not have been mad at me and I don't want to be that way. Instead, I want to be able to say, if that happens to the God, would you help me to forgive them and bless them as they go on their day so that my day is not wrapped up with a second that happened in the car when someone was really going really fast, or maybe I was oblivious to I was the wrong guy, and I'm going to be just self-righteous the rest of the day. So God, would you help me with this? And then lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. God, would you please, would you please help me to flee temptation today? There's going to be moments and times where I'm going to be tempted to sin, tempted to go against your kingdom and to build my own kingdom. Would you help me in those moments, God, to flee that and to do what's right, to follow you? Would you help me with this, God? I, I need you in my life to do this.
And so I, I've been using this. I do this as, I, as I'm on my way to work. I just pray through this. And it, so I didn't, in the beginning I didn't because I couldn't, I didn't have it memorized. And so in the beginning I had to open up my Bible to Matthew 6 and I had to read it and then stop and pray. But as I've done it for a few weeks that then turned into a month now, I, I can just have it memorized and I can just go through it as I'm on my way to work. And it's amazing the difference that it, it does for me to focus my mind and my heart on God's kingdom and on his ways instead of my own kingdom. And so there'll be times where I'll get to the, you know, like 10 o'clock and I haven't prayed and I'm like crabby and I'm like mad at this person that did this thing to me when I was driving or whatever it was. And then I realize like, where is these attitudes coming from? And I have to guard my heart and go through, go through that process. And I realize, oh, I have not set my mind and my heart on God and his kingdom. And instead, I've just been wandering through life. And so it's been shaping me in this direction and I don't want to be shaped that direction. So I pause in that moment and pray through this and redirect my mind and my heart towards that. And this is how I stand firm in the faith. It is by connecting with Jesus, connecting with his kingdom. And then as I do that, I believe that he strengthens us to stand firm in the faith and to walk through this life. Which then leads to the third, or the last takeaway. As followers of Christ, being on guard and standing firm in the faith results in courage, strength, and love. That it results in courage, strength, and love. Now, I want to be clear that Paul says, be strong, be courageous, and do everything in love. These are imperative commands that he wants us to do them, but I do believe that as we connect with Jesus, his courage becomes our courage. As we connect with Jesus, his strength becomes our strength. His love becomes our love. And so this is how we become more courageous. This is how we become more strong. This is how we do everything in love is by connecting with Jesus. And so Paul could have asked them, or he could have directed them to do anything, but he chooses these, he chooses these three things. So why courage? Why does he say be courageous? I think it's because if you are gonna be countercultural in a society that's going one way and you're gonna go against the grain of that society, it's gonna take courage. It is gonna require courage to do it. But especially in the Roman era, so when Paul was writing to the Corinthians, the Romans can throw you to the lions in the arena. The, the Romans can burn you at the stake, and so if you're gonna go different from them, it's gonna take courage to know that I'm gonna stand up for what's right, I'm gonna stand up for what's true, and there might be a possibility where people do not like it, and it costs me greatly. But I'm gonna do it because I believe this is the way to life, and I believe that other people need to hear this, and so I'm gonna do it graciously in love, but I am gonna be courageous about it. And so I don't think there is a better place to find courage than in Jesus Christ. I don't think there is a more courageous human being that has ever lived than Jesus Christ. I cannot tell you with certainty when Jesus knows that he's going to the cross. I, I feel pretty confident that he knows before he's incarnate as a baby. But then once he's a baby, I don't know if he has access to that information still, or it's not until he gets to his ministry, three years, the last three years of his life, where he knows that my life is going to end on a cross. You imagine three years of your life, maybe longer than that, you're marching around the earth knowing that my life is going to end being tortured, being beaten, being mocked, being belittled, suffocating and bleeding to death in front of a crowd. Like it takes courage to march towards that day after day after day and to do it with grace, do it with kindness, not just with grit and just say, I'm just gonna grit my teeth and get through this, but instead it was with love and joy as he walked towards that fate. And, and I don't know, but I wonder if he bumped into the guards, the Romans who were gonna drive nails through his wrists, and he knows you guys are the one who's gonna nail me to the cross. 
and he treats them with kindness and mercy. The, the, the practice in that day was that people would, would also be crucified along the road, and so I'm guessing that he would walk past people who had been crucified knowing this is my fate, and yet he walked towards it day after day. Like there has not been a more courageous person who has ever lived, and yet his courage becomes our courage as we connect with him. He will help us to stand up in love and grace and encourage in the midst of a society where at times it's difficult to stand up for what's true. Why strength? Why does he call us to have strength? He calls us to strength because strength is required for a lifetime of faithfulness. That we're not just talking about a moment or two of standing up with Jesus, but it is a lifetime of walking against the grain of society, and so it requires strength. You think about floating down a river is easy, but walking against a river for a long time requires strength. Is that what Jesus is calling us to here on earth? As followers, as disciples, it's to walk against society to show a different way, a better way. So that as we're walking by and people are floating by, people are going, wait a minute. Why are they doing it differently? Why do they have joy when they have less than I have? Why do they have peace when they have hardship in their life and I don't have hardship and yet I, I don't have peace? Where does their strength come from? And they begin to see and hear about the wonder of God who become human and would die in their place so that they could know God the Father. They could be reconciled to a king. And so strength is required because this is a lifetime of saying I'm gonna follow Jesus, not just a couple moments. But God's strength, Jesus' strength becomes our strength as we connect with him. Then finally, love. Why does he call them to do everything in love? I believe it's because love is what makes our message hearable. That without love, people will never hear what we're actually saying. They will tune us out. So Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 13, one through three. So he was talking about love and he says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have a faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. He says, if I do anything without love, it's worthless. That if I try to talk to my neighbor about Jesus, but I don't do it with love, I am a clanging gong or a clanging cymbal. This makes me think of Charlie Brown. If you're familiar with the Charlie Brown TV show or Christmas special, you know the adults on that show, they don't talk. The children, the kids talk, but the, the adults go, wah, 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 wah. Like that's how they sound. Like teachers, wah, 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 wah. Parents, wah, 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 wah. I've yet to meet the person that has come up to me and say, Jordan, I was deeply impacted by the adults on Charlie Brown. They really spoke to me. I haven't heard it because it's a gong. It's a symbol. And so without love, without love, people only hear wah, 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 wah. So you can share the gospel with your neighbor, but if it's not done in love, and what they hear is, this is the guy that's really mad about my trash cans. They don't hear the gospel. Or, or this is the gal that doesn't care about my kids, or whatever, whatever the situation is. If they don't experience love from us, they won't ever hear the message. And so Paul calls us to do everything in love because that is what makes the message hearable. That's what makes it effective. 
That's what makes it transfer, transformative. And so we do everything in love. And there is no better place to find love than Jesus Christ. You think about a guy who can be crucified, who's been tortured, beaten, mocked, belittled, and he looks down at the people who've nailed him to this cross, who are mocking him, and he says, Father, would you forgive these people? They don't know what they're doing. Like, that's love. And that's a love that I don't yet have, but I want to have it. And so I go to Jesus each day saying, would you give me a little bit more of that? Because I want to look like you. Because if I ever find myself in that place where people are mistreating me and belittling me, instead of responding with hate, instead of responding with aggression, I want to respond with, God, would you forgive these people because they don't understand what they're doing. But apart from Christ, I will never be able to do that. And so day after day, I come back to him and say, would you do a little bit more of this today? Would you fix my mind in your kingdom? Would you help me to guard my mind? Would you help me to stand firm in the faith? Would you make me more courageous? Would you make me more strong? Would you help me to do everything in love today? And so we do everything in love. If we, we give, we give generously in love. It's not out of um, for, being forced. It's not with gritting our teeth we drop it in. It's with love that says, God, this is your money and this is an act of worship that you are my hope, you are my help, and so I give out of love. That we, we guard our hearts and our minds in love. We stand up courageously in love. Now, as we wrap up, um, we've been talking a lot about rooted the last couple weeks, and I don't know if you're someone that's been sitting on the fence and you're going, like, I just don't really know. This just sounds like one more thing, and I just don't really know about it. If you're sitting on the fence, can I be someone on the side of Rooted that just grabs you and pulls you over and says, come with us. Come with us on this journey. Because what Paul is really talking about in all of 1 Corinthians is let's be disciples of Christ. Let's be followers of Christ that really say, I want to grow to become more like my Savior, more like my King. That not just I want to say, would you take me to heaven when I die, but I want to be like you here on earth so people can see the invisible God through visible me. And that requires discipleship. That requires the visible me that doesn't look like Jesus to be transformed and changed so they can actually see the Jesus who would be courageous, the Jesus who would be strong, the Jesus who would be loving. And it happens through discipleship. And I'm excited about Rooted because I do believe that Rooted is going to help us to grow in these areas. It will help us to hear Jesus' voice more clearly so we can be on guard against the ways that we would be shaped in a different direction. And I believe that Rooted is going to help us to stand firm in the faith so that we would grow in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, all the fruits of the Spirit. And so if you've been on the fence, would you take this journey with us? Would you open up your phone, go to carneyefree.com slash rooted, and would you register and just say, I will give 10, 11 weeks of my life to say, I'm gonna go all in on discipleship and see what Jesus would do in my life. Would you pray with me? Father God, God, thank you that you love us. God, thank you that you care for us. Thank you that you show us the path of life. God, would you help us to take it? God, we, we need your help. That apart from you, God, we will, we will float down the river. Apart from you, God, we will go our own way, and that will lead us to frustration and disappointment and discouragement. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to connect with you. 
God, I, I pray for my friends in this room that, that giving has always just been a struggle. Would you please help them to see that you're not trying to take from them, you're trying to give them freedom from the grasp that money has on them. And for my friends in this room that, that they just feel like they don't have the time to connect with you, God, I, I pray that they would hear that you say to them, it's not that I wanna take your time away, it's that I, I want to give you hope and help and strength and courage and love so that you can be different in your world. And God, would you help us that we sang before this, God, Lord, we need you every hour we need you, and that's true. And yet sometimes our hearts don't believe it. So God, I pray that you would help us to declare early in the morning, God, we need you. And throughout our day, we need you. And as we lay down at the end of the night, God, we need you. Because apart from you, God, we will fall short. Apart from you, we will not do things in love. And apart from you, God, we'll be ineffective. So would you help us to love people well, God? I pray this all in your son's name. Amen. So as we transition to communion, I, if you are someone that um, knows and loves Jesus Christ, you've surrendered your life to him and you would like to participate in communion with us, um, I invite you to grab out your communion elements. If you didn't get one and you want one, please put up a hand. One of our um, fantastic deacon or deaconesses will help you. So if you need one, just raise a hand. There's one over here, a couple over here. Someone over here, Andrew, if you can help that person, thank you. So communion is an opportunity for us to one, be reminded of our desperate need for Jesus. That God became human, lived a perfect life, died in our place a substitutionary death, and was resurrected to new life because that was the only way that we could be reunited with God. God who we were created to be in a relationship with. That we need Jesus Christ. We cannot do this apart from him. Communion is a, is a monthly reminder for us here that I need you, Jesus. That I needed your substitutionary death on the cross where your blood was spilled for me. I, I needed your body to be broken for me so that mine could be made whole. And so I, I would invite you, before we take the communion elements, to really just take a moment and, and think about, take inventory of maybe your last month and say, God, would you help me to know where is it that I, I have not believed what's right and true about you? Where have I been shaped by my society instead of being shaped by your truth and your love and your goodness? And then just confess that. Confess, God, I've been shaped by the belief that I needed this or this or this to be happy, and it's not that I just need you, I need this. God, would you help me to find my full contentment and my joy in you? Or perhaps it's, God, I, I feel like if my, my kids would just do this, I'd be content. Or if my spouse would just do this, I'd be content. God, would you please help me to find my joy in you 
that I could show them love, grace, mercy, all these things apart from whatever they do because it's who you are in me. And so I invite you just to take a few moments here to ask God to search your heart and then confess those things and then I'll lead us in taking the elements here.